0: Tanse Sego Annie Bujou, Queen Linda Louise and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life, where we talk about how to live a lifestyle that's focused on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time, making sure that we put the same amount of effort into revitalizing our cultures and traditions, nation building, and taking care of all of the people that belong to our nations. And today, I want to talk to probably the most famous warrior of all. She's one of my heroes, and and I'm just the biggest fan of her. I'm probably her number one stalker. It's Dr. Cindy Blackstock. She's she's probably the most amazing warrior I know because she involves kids in her, you know, um, epic battle to make sure that there's justice for the most vulnerable in our society. And the one of the most amazing things that I've found from how she does her advocacy is that the kids have all the solutions. It's really very simple and it's depoliticized. And I, don't, I really don't see a lot of other people doing it in that way. So Cindy, welcome to the show. And for the one or two people in the world who might not know who you are, if you could introduce yourself and kind of let us know where you're from and your nation and all that.
1: Sure. So my name is Cindy Blackstock. I'm a member of the Gitxsan First Nation, which is in British Columbia. and I could not go any further without introducing you to Mary the Bear. There she. Is. She's member of the Matriarch from the Carrier Second E First Nation, and she's mother to Spirit Bear who many of you know. and Spirit Bear represents all the First Nations and other children who have stood together for justice at the tribunal. So these guys actually come from the territory where mostly I grew up. Um, when I was four years old, I lived in a place called Topley, BC, which mm-hmm. is like probably not even on a map. I called my childhood unincorporated because we lived <laughs> in these rural and remote places without mares. And um, we, uh, my first job was a pine cone picker. I would oh go my out goodness. I picked pine cones when I was four years old and put them in a gunny sack. And then uh, we would sell them and they would be used for reforestation. So I do that all over Care Secondary Territory. And that was kind of how I got launched into it. And when I lived in rural places, and I mean, like, the, I know people talk about remote communities in our area, but. Like, when I talk about remote, I'm talking about, like, only four or five other people in a local area. Oh, my God, <laughs> that's, that's remote. like a social butterfly. <laughs> and so, like, it was, it, you know, there's only so many times you can talk to the wolves and feel good about it. it <laughs> yeah. uh, but in some ways, I think that's where I got kind of my, you know, I guess, practical kind of side of me.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? And just more grounded. And I just... You know, I follow what my mom's best advice is, which is when you come across something complicated, look for the obvious because almost no one does. Mm, That's good advice. It is good advice, right? I think we overcomplicate things too much. And that's why I love working with kids, right? Kids can just see things, especially injustice. They see it so clearly, you know. And what a lot of us forget is that all children understand fairness when they're two years old. Oh. So... They understand it when they're two years old. And so you don't have to teach them very much. You just need to nurture that and make sure that they don't lose it and they don't rationalize inequality or unfairness to other people and then teach them how they can address it, right? Mm -hmm. To do respectful ways, um, to do it in loving ways, but to do it in very clear and effective ways. And that's what, that's what I've tried to do.
0: Wow. Well, I mean, that's, When you think about it, it's all of the negative stuff is a learned behavior because the positive just seems so natural in babies and toddlers and kids. They just naturally are empathetic and naturally, you know, care about other people or if they're sad or if something's wrong. But I feel like your point about, All of this being normalized, learning to rationalize or justify or or seeing how other people are acting is where we kind of fall down.
1: Yeah, and sometimes what I really realize or learn from the kids is, you know, you've you've been to Ottawa lots of times, I live Mm -hmm. here, I see lots of protests and people are angry and crying up on Parliament Hill. Well, I don't want to be a part of that, right, anger and crying. And what the kids have really taught me is that the most sustainable movement has to be based on love. And that's what elders have always said, too. Like Elmer Kershane, you know, the late Elmer He always based everything that he did on love. Um, and I think that that's the way that we have to kind of recalibrate our traditional ways of advocating. So we have, uh, you know, we bring children together, we have them do hearts and send them to the prime ministers so that First Nations kids get a fair childhood. And, you know, th- we do it in fun ways with our teddy bears. Spirit Bear is very popular and he goes out and teaches everybody. And we have our barrister programs where his family members <laughs> get hosted by different communities. And so just by doing stuff like that, it really, in many ways, I think, brings back the best of our culture, which is we can stand up for injustice on a basis of love. And that's something no government in Canada has ever been able to do.
0: Well, and the thing is, is that you're you're really doing what, other people haven't done. So, for example, I've gone to the United Nations many times and, you know, uh, given testimony and answered questions, but didn't you take some kids to the United yeah, Nations?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, like you have been there before, saw lots of adults talking about kids. And I thought, well, why don't we bring kids themselves to talk to the UN? <laughs> I mean, they, they actually say things in far clearer ways oh. than uh, many adults do. And this is their story and this is their lives and you know I think for those of us who have done this a few times I think it's our job is to not only make room for them but to support them in actually doing it so Back in 2012, we uh, took six young people, uh, three of them were below 18, so they came with their guardian or mom or dad or whatever, and then the three older ones came on their own, and they did the presentation to the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child, and they carried with them a book that non-Indigenous children had made up of all their letters as to why they wanted to grow up in a country where First Nations children were treated respectfully and honorably, and so that had more impact than someone like me sitting there talking to the committee, right? (laughs) Well, even that book,
0: even that book, I mean, think of all the publications we do, you know, because that's part of it. You have to make legal submissions at the tribunal or you have to do academic publications. But that book written in the just honest, direct, imperfect, sweet ways that kids are to say, you know, I don't think that's fair if someone doesn't have a school. That that is far more impactful to me as a lawyer than a lawyer trying to explain all the legal ways why it's not fair.
1: Yeah, because they don't rationalize it at all, right? And they can see it so clearly, like some of the letters showed what their schools look like and then what a First Nations school looks like. And they, yeah. don't, they don't understand why their friends who are First Nations are getting less. They know that they want to grow up and be someone important. They know how important speaking, the non-Indigenous kids know how when they go home and they speak a different language, it might be Arabic or Spanish or, or whatever, then how much pride that brings their families. And they can understand why First Nations languages are important too. We just need to bring forward that new generation of children who will grow up to be adults, who won't rationalize or excuse it, but also have grown up with a knowledge about what are treaties, what is self, Mm. what is, um, what is it, what is that thing called undrip? What does that actually mean? (laughs) And um, what does it mean to, to respectfully coexist with people who are different than you? And to really ensure that everybody's rights are recognized, that you no longer end up in this race where I get my rights recognized, but Mm. that means you lose out. I think that that that's been far too long what we've taught kids. And I think that's the wrong dialogue. I think that if we uplift everybody's rights and we make every child proud of the culture where they come from, then they will understand why culture is important to us.
0: Well and imagine now if we have a whole generation that's raised thinking this way that way it won't matter if they become a doctor or a lawyer or a day- daycare worker or someone who owns a restaurant they will have grown up with those ID those ideas that yeah it's okay to be compassionate and caring and that justice is the norm as opposed to something that's a continual battle
1: yeah that's exactly it like that's why i spend so much time with kids i think if we can raise a new generation that's going to shift the way that we understand canada and the world and the way we understand one another adults They are, some of them you can train uh, to go the other direction, (laughs) but some of them are really stuck in their ways and they don't learn as quickly. And the other thing is that they wring their hands too often. Well, what can we do? What can we do? Well, kids, when they see an unfairness, they aren't sitting there, well, let's strike a committee, right? They do something to try and make it fair. Yeah. That's the kind of thing I want to kind of nurture in them as they grow up.
0: Well, there's, there's several phrases I've never heard from a child. This is an important first step yeah can't, we can't make change overnight yeah. well i had good intentions like yeah. you never hear kids say anything like that it's like why can't we just do it now why can't we just give them the money for the school now
1: yeah. and that's a question we should all be asking ourselves you know and even on the first nation side i think sometimes we have normalize the inequalities yeah. in our communities um people sometimes don't even know that they're getting less they just know that life is harder for them that Mm -hmm. they you know maybe not have clean water housing all the rest of it And so we put up this whole backpack of disadvantage on a generation of kids. And we, the adults, have normalized it. And we haven't fought against those inequalities to the degree we need to. And to me, this is the most pressing issue facing First Nations people. Like, I really think, like Elmer Courshane said, we have to look after the little ones. And, you know, I and i Totally believe in land rights and stuff but I don't understand why we've had so many land rights cases and so few cases about dealing with the inequalities our kids get they deserve proper schools they deserve places where they can play they deserve places where they can you know uh, deal with some of the family issues that they're dealing with but Mm -hmm. in a safe and healthy way and we haven't thought for that in the same way and I think that's wrong
0: no and uh, you know that's where I think This whole concept of sovereignty and nation building, because I'm totally a pro sovereignist when it comes to First Nations, you know, and our nations and nation building and rebuilding and planning for the future. But the core of that future are these kids and we're not in nation building if they're murdered and missing, if they're alone and isolated or feel like they uh, don't want to live anymore or if they're incarcerated or completely detached from our communities because they went into foster care and then went into another home and then completely got lost and we we don't even know how to find them anymore,
1: that that's the heart of our nations. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. To me, that is where we start, right? Mm Because I actually think people like my generation, like we were impacted a lot by colonialism and residential schools and stuff. So I don't think like when I only speaking for myself, but I think I don't have that depth of cultural understanding that would really prepare me to negotiate a treaty. Uh, in a a good way. But I I feel really good about this next generation coming up in elementary school. I think that they really have that knowledge and it's our job almost to raise that next generation who can deal with those other big issues. Mm -hmm. But our first job is to make sure that they have a childhood that makes them feel proud and honoured, that makes them feel safe and secured, and that they never have to recover from. That's our job of our generation. Yeah, really, that yeah. we don't need to recover from our own
0: childhoods when, when these children are older. So for, for people who say don't know the details of the issue, you know, around our kids in foster care, like, what is the issue? Why, why is it so particularly um, a problem for First Nations kids?
1: Well, a lot of folks that are listening in may not know that First Nations children are 12 times more likely to be in foster care. Mm-hmm. And notice I'm not using the word Indigenous, because the no. rates are lower for Métis children. Yeah. And that's not at all to diminish the importance of dealing with that overrepresentation. But I worry about this Indigenous pan-Indigenous uh, thing. Yeah. Um, so for First Nations kids, it's 12 times more likely. And the reasons for that are poverty, Mm. poor housing and we see that in overcrowding in homes black mold lack of water lack of sanitation those kinds of things and then multi-generational trauma that leads to addictions so those are the major reasons that drive it and in some ways that's good news because actually with the proper interventions we could we could deal with a lot of that but um the bad news is that the Canadian government underfunds all of those services, yeah. and that means that um, you know child welfare workers who are, oh, in many cases, doing good work at the First Nations agencies. I should say they're actually, if you're serviced by a First Nations agency, you're about half as likely to lose your kid, oh but they're doing so on far fewer resources. And um, they're also doing so when the bigger issues like, you know, you can do child welfare, but if no one is building proper homes and if no mm. one's looking at the water supply, then it's really going to make it still hard for families to get to a place of wellness to deal with addictions and mental health. So, we need to have what I call equity. And that is that it doesn't just, it's not the same as everybody else gets off reserve. Because not everybody else off reserve has ever dealt with these ongoing inequalities in every right. program. No one else has really dealt with residential schools other than the Metis and Inuit in the same way First Nations have. So, there's all these multiple hardships and weights, if you want, on the uh, well being of our families that other families haven't experienced. So, we're going to need uh, more resources to live them up mm-hmm. so they can have the same opportunities other families have to raise their children in healthy ways, but in ways that honor their culture and honor their ancestors. That's really what we're looking at. And those that's why those inequalities are so important to address. Because if we address the inequalities, then we give rise to the opportunity of community members at the grassroots, who I really believe in, and agencies are out there doing the hard work, to even do better for families. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. And that's,
0: I mean, I've heard you say many, many times if we just focus on the problem and not all the root causes, we're not going to actually stem the increasing rates of kids going into foster care or permanent guardianship or adoptions outside of their communities because. The, prob- the, the, you know, the root causes still exist of you know poverty and lack of education and lack of funding for health and the whole gambit of social services that most Canadians get to take for granted.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And the other thing, too, that is important to say is um, one of my colleagues, Terry Cross, once said, he said, you know, self-government is when you embrace what hurts. Mm. And I think that's true in our communities. We uh, need to let those kids know who are experiencing sexual abuse or physical abuse at the hands of other community members, that they're not alone, and that we're gonna stand with them and make sure they're safe and secure. That's part of our work of self-government too. And um, that's a work I see many, many people doing, but I think there's more for us to do there. We're capable of, of doing better for our kids.
0: Yeah, well that so that real I'm glad you raised that because there's really two conversations going on. You yeah. know, there's one with the public and the government to hold the government to account for their discriminatory underfunding and the way they mistreat our kids but then it's also there's a conversation we need to have where you know we can understand the root causes of the struggles and the trauma but we also have to make sure that kids are safe that's and right. that that's the harder i think that's the, the even harder conversation to have because it means reflecting on our own nations and what we need to do to not be the cause
1: of a of, uh, child's trauma. Yeah, that's right. But that's also, I think, what a loving thing to do. Yeah. You know, like uh, when I've seen, I, I've had the blessing, I guess, of working with young people now for over 35 years. And some of them have come from situations where you, I don't think they've ever really felt love before. Um, and so for them to realize, for someone just to say to them, I love you enough to try, I I see you, you're important, and um, you're not alone in this, and I'm going to stand by you while we have these difficult conversations in our community, but we are going to work it through together, and um, because we love you, right? Mm -hmm. I think that is the most important thing that we can do as adults to this young generation of kids is love them enough to stand in the winds of that colonialism, to take that breeze front on ourselves as adults. That's our job and sometimes that wind is going to come from the Canadian government or provincial or territorial governments but sometimes it's our own wind too. It's that wind of the colonial forces and what that's done to deteriorate our communities. And we need to stand strong for those kids in front of that too. Well, that's
0: essentially being a warrior for your own kids, even when it's hard, even when it's harder than it would be for anybody else because of what, what colonialism has done to our people. It's you know, trying to draw on the strength of our ancestors be a warrior for our kids, and say, I'm going to struggle, and I'm going to make mistakes, but I see, I hear you, and I see you, and I love you, and I'm going to try, and let's work it out, because if there's one thing I noticed, my family used to um, uh, do foster, have foster kids, and it didn't matter where they came from, or why they were taken away, those kids love their parents, and the place they feel Where they want to be the most, in in most cases, is with their mom or dad, even if they're suffering from addictions, even if they're not there all the time. And so, you know, it's how do you just bring those two things together? You know, that love and loyalty that children have for their parents or grandparents or aunties and the warrior inside of us that needs to step up and say, well, what can I do to actually make it better, too, for those kids to make sure that everybody stays together?
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's where I'm so excited to see more and more of our First Nations leaders kind of standing up and really saying this is important. Uh, We need more of those voices. Mm -hmm. um, And we need to really recognize that it's not going to be easy. It's not as easy as this Bill C-92 that's coming up. It's not as easy as just signing an agreement. Um, That This is a long-term commitment. But this is probably the most important thing our generation can do which is that free up the space, take that hit so that the generation of kids behind us is one step further to being that generation of our ancestors' dreams. Wow,
0: what an excellent place to end part one of my three-part podcast interview with Warrior Woman, Dr. Cindy Blackstock. You can tune in for parts two and three of Cindy's interview on Friday at 6 a.m. for the next two Fridays. I release a new podcast every Friday at 6 a.m. So if you like this podcast, please consider supporting it by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia. Well,